Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. God, I just really felt led to continue on this subject, the fight of faith. We've been talking about the fact that faith is a fight. It's a spiritual law, but it's also a fight. And of course, fighting the good fight of faith means you have opposition, correct? We have forces that are aligned against us to destroy us. The devil, the world, and the flesh coming against us to impede our progress and prevent us from finishing our course. Paul said that he fought a good fight. He finished his course. He kept the faith. And so really the subject of faith is one that's never going to be overused. We need to teach it constantly because it runs cross grain to the way we think in the natural. Without faith, you can't please God. Without faith, you can't fight, conquer the world. The Bible says that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And it's my faith. We have access to the grace of God, which means everything that's been provided for us by grace is accessed by faith. And also in Hebrews, we're told that without faith, the gospel benefits no one. You can't be saved without faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. You're sanctified through the faith that is in Christ Jesus and justified by faith. So the list goes on and on. Revelation 12, 11 will be our opening text because I believe this is one of the most important messages you will hear if you want to have strong, robust faith in God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says this. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto death. Notice how they overcame the wicked one? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We said faith is a fight with words. But the words that we use, the words that we speak must be based on the word of God. What God has said. What God said we're able to say. When Jesus stood against the opposing forces against him. He said it is written, it is written, it is written. One for each dimension of man. Spirit, soul, and body. So when we get these attacks in spirit, soul, or body, it's important to know what is written so we can stand effectively against these forces uh, arranged against us. Well, the word of our testimony is talking about the fact that we testify to the truth of the blood of the Lamb. We're not fighting the enemy by getting blood in a basin and throwing it at him. It's not how it works. He's talking about the fact that the blood of the Lamb represents the covenant of blood that we have with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And by understanding and knowing what that teaches us, we use those words in faith declaring that because of the blood of Jesus, we know we've been liberated, delivered, or set free. So whatever his blood purchased for us becomes our covenant right. And we can use our faith in what he's done, his finished work. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, our next text, here we read that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the cross. I just want to make sure you're awake because I know next week you're going to be a little bit tired. I have given it to you upon the what? Altar. Altar to make an atonement 
for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. How important is the blood to the physical body? Without it, there is no life. How important is the blood of Jesus to the spiritual condition of mankind? Without it, there is no life. For whether there's no shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So we understand that the shedding of blood in Jesus, of course, provides eternal life for humanity. It's been said that the Bible is a bloody book or a book of blood, about blood. And just like the human body, if you cut the human body, what happens? It bleeds. And someone once said, if you cut the Bible in any place, it'll bleed. It'll bleed the red crimson blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a crimson thread that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Because it's all about the blood of Jesus. It represents the blood of Jesus. You go to the fall of man in the garden when he was kicked out and banished. He had to be covered because he was naked and ashamed. And so what we see is God slaying animals, killing innocent animals, taking their blood to have peace between himself and man and covering them. So atonement means to cover. So they were covered from the beginning in Genesis with sacrificial blood. But then we see that same concept taught to Cain and Abel. Abel brought a gift of blood, a sacrifice of blood, and his blood sacrifice was accepted. But Cain brought the fruit of his land, which represents his own works, his own labor. And even though it was a wonderful gift, and maybe even the best gift, I heard one faith preacher that I really admire a lot, I don't agree with it, he said it was because he didn't offer it in faith. Well, you know what? Faith is based on the word of God. And if God said, give me a blood sacrifice, then faith means you're offering it a blood sacrifice to God because you're believing his word. So when you bring your own gift, whether it's the first fruits of your land or whatever that you do, you're not obeying God. You're not doing it his way. Plus, this is true. His offering represents works. Abel's offering represents grace. Something that he could do, works. Something that innocent blood can do, grace. So from the very beginning to the book of Revelation, where we see they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Also, they had their clothing washed in blood is a scarlet thread called the blood of Jesus that redeems mankind from his fallen state. Now, this blood of Jesus, once again, and I know sometimes this is controversial and I don't know why. To me, it just shows that people don't study their Bible and they don't understand types and shadows. Where was the blood to be offered? On the altar. Is that not what it said in Leviticus 17, 11? I've given to you the blood upon the altar to make what? An atonement, a covering for sin. Well, the blood of Jesus was shed upon Calvary's cross, but the sacrifice was made at the throne. And I'll get that to that in a moment. But that's where it was offered. Look in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, because this is what this book is really all about. Verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Skip down to verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. On the day of atonement, the high priest 
was the one who would go into the high court of heaven, the holiest place of all, and offer the blood of sacrificial animals for the sins of the people. Atonement means to cover the sin. So if we go back to the Old Testament history, we discover this. When God told Moses to build a replica of the high court of heaven on earth, the tabernacle, it was an exact replica of what is in heaven. And if you really look at, I got a study out there, you could pick it up for yourself. It's called the cross in the tabernacle. When they laid out the tabernacle, there's a cross in the tabernacle that represents the very life of Christ that was sacrificed for mankind. But you've got this perfect replica. You've got the outer court. You've got the inner court. And you've got the holiest place of all. The outer court is where a lot of activity took place, where they slayed the animals and went past the different altars and that sort of thing. And, but only on the day of atonement, the day of covering, could the high priest enter the holiest place of all to obtain a covering for their sin for the entirety of the year. So you've got your earthly tabernacle, you've got your holy place, your mercy seat, you've got your priestly work of atonement, but these are all shadows of things to come, is what Hebrew says. These were types of the antitype, which was Christ coming in to the world, sacrificing his blood, and then after dying upon Calvary's cross, taking his blood to the high court of heaven where he would obtain eternal redemption for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats and heifers and pigeons and turtle doves could possibly take away sin. That was impossible, which is why they did it year after year after year. But look at this verse. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Where was eternal redemption obtained? In the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. When the blood was applied to the altar is when the judgment seat became a mercy seat. Where man was forgiven for his original sin in Adam. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, wait, before I get there, I want to emphasize this. Just as the blood of the sacrificial lamb had to be applied to the doorpost and lintel of the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, even so the blood of Christ had to be applied, not just offered, not just slain, but applied. Okay, you go back to Egypt and they're told, if you don't apply the blood to the doorpost and lintel of your house, when the death angel comes you will lose your firstborn now imagine here you are a very proud Israelite living in Egypt you've got your nice little cottage and maybe the day before you painted your door and the doorpost and the lintel of your house and it's just sparkling white absolutely beautiful like so many you took a step back you did a selfie your whole family was in front of that door right there and it looks so good and so nice. But then you get a memo, you get a text sent to you by Mo. You know, Mo sends you a text, Moses sends you a text. And the text says, you got to take an animal, the, the lamb, you got to slay it. You got to shed the blood, okay? But then you get, can't just do that. You got to take the blood and apply it to the doorpost and lintel of your house is what you're supposed to do. Can you imagine... You know, one of the fellows just saying, I just painted that door. It looks so beautiful, looks so good, so nice. I'm going to send, send one of these pictures over to the kids over on the other side of, the, of Egypt. But if I don't 
use the blood to mess it up, what's going to happen? We're going to lose our firstborn. It wasn't the shed blood that provided the protection. It was the shed blood applied that provided the protection. And it didn't matter if you were an Egyptian or an Israelite. If you did not apply the blood, there was no protection from the death born, for the firstborn. Is that not true? So it's not the shed blood. It's the what? Applied blood. So the blood had to be applied. Now look at Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to show you the direction that we're going in right now. Because this is so important to our life of faith. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through patient, faith and patience inherit the promises. Now remember, they were kept out of the promised land because of what? Unbelief. So now he explains how to have the kind of faith that will get us into our promised land. This is the kind of faith that is sure and steadfast that enters into beyond the veil. Look at what it says. For when God made promise to Abraham. Well, let's back it up. That you be not slothful, but through faith and patience have the promise. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater. Notice the language. He could swear by no greater. He swear by himself. Saying, surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show the heirs of promise, the immutability, unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay, a hold, lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Which hope we had as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So our faith finds its roots in a blood covenant relationship that was established between God the Father and God the Son on the behalf of mankind. To illustrate this, the writer here who I believe to be Paul illustrates it by using the example of Abraham entering into a covenant relationship with God. And basically, it's similar to what Jesus said in Matthew, and that's a wrong verse in there, 26, 28, when Jesus entered into a blood covenant relationship with the Father for mankind. Look at what it says here. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament or covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of, of sins. So he uses this covenant to reveal to us how to have strong faith in God and in his integrity or in his word, knowing that God must honor his word or he violates his covenant. Now the word confirm. He confirmed it by an oath. It means to remove all doubt. By an authoritative act. Or indisputable fact. To remove all doubt. Well if you remove all doubt. What's left? Faith. In order for Abraham to have faith. God had to remove all doubt. But how do you remove all doubt from someone? That's the question. Well, the answer is found in Genesis chapter 15 because when Abraham asked God that question, here's what God did. Abraham basically said, Genesis 15, 
How do I know I can trust you? How do I know you will honor your word? How do I know that if I step out on the integrity of your word, that I'm not going to sink, I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to go under? Genesis 15, let's read it. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit? In other words, I'm not going to surrender all to you. I'm not going to give myself completely to you. Unless I know for a sure, for sure or for a surety that you're going to honor your part of the bargain. How do I know that you're going to follow through with what you said you were going to do? Well, isn't this strange how God answers? He said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a pigeon, a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away, or Abram. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the Euph river Euphrates. God made a promise to Abraham to give him heirs, to give him land, and to give him blessings untold. And Abraham says, how do I know you're going to follow through? And God says, go get these five animals, slice the three down the middle, lay them on the ground in a trough, let the blood flow with the two birds. They didn't cut them in the middle. They just let the blood flow. And then God says, I am going to enter into a covenant, a one-sided covenant with you. You go to sleep, and you can watch me in a dream. But God himself came down into that place where these animals were, and the blood was just flowing. And God himself walked what is called the walk of blood. And in this walk of blood, you pronounce blessings and curses. Like Deuteronomy 28 Blessed shall thou be in the city, blessed shall thou be in the field, blessed shall be your basket and store, the fruit of your kind, etc., 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 the fruit of your body, and so on. But if you don't honor the covenant, then cursed shalt thou be in the city, cursed shalt thou be in the field. So they pronounce the blessings of the covenant. It's one-sided because he's asleep. God is saying, I'm taking responsibility for the covenant. I'm going to make it good. And here are the promises. You're going to have heirs. He doesn't have a child yet. You're going to have land. He doesn't have much land yet. And you are going to have blessings untold in this place called the land of promise. And for you to know for certain that I will honor what I'm telling you, I swear by myself. 
Hebrews said that men swear by the greater. So why, why do you think in a court of law that's what they have you do? The judge has you stand up and say you swear by the greater. Put your hand on the Bible and swear to God that you are telling the absolute truth. So help you God. In other words, I now am responsible to God if I lie. Right? Well, since God couldn't swear by any greater, who did he swear by? Himself. And he said, I swear by me. This is my covenant I make between you and me. You will have an heir. You will have land. And you will have blessings untold. You'll live out the full length of your days. And you're going to have a wonderful life. And you're going to come to me in a ripe old age, Abraham, if you will just follow me and enter into it. So now he knows. So he confirms this promise by an oath. That's what Hebrew was saying. But Hebrews was also saying that for us and for our benefit, letting us know we too are the heirs of promise. He wants us to know the immutability of his counsel. In other words, the unchangeableness of God, who once he swears by an oath, he cannot possibly change his word. Look here in the book of Jeremiah 33 to reinforce that truth. In Jeremiah 33, thus saith the Lord, if you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and there should not be day and night in their seasons, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. What is he saying? He is saying, if you can break the covenant of day and night to stop day and night from existing, then you can break my covenant with David. So in other words, it's impossible. It doesn't change. Look in Psalms 89, verse 34 through 37. My covenant will I not break. This is God speaking. My covenant will I not break. Nor alter the thing that's gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie to David. Notice he's swearing by his holiness. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon. And as a faithful witness in heaven Selah means stop and think about that. What God is trying to instill within the hearts and minds of Abraham and also all of us is that he is a covenant-keeping God. And the way he ensures trust in us to let us know that we could rest our head upon the pillow of his promises is to tell us, I'm going to swear by an oath and seal it with blood. And once it's sealed with blood, there's not even a chance or a possibility that what I said I would do would not come to pass. That gives us strong consolation or a strong faith. And listen carefully to this statement. God's sovereignty is bound to the covenant. His sovereign will is bound to the covenant. People today will say, well, if God doesn't want to do something, he doesn't have to do it. Not true. Once he swears by an oath, he cannot change what he said. Do you remember the covenant he made with Noah? Did he not tell Noah that I will never flood the earth ever again to destroy mankind? And the bow that's in the sky, is it not a reminder of the covenant that he made? So here's the question. Can he destroy the earth by a flood? Can he? Yes, he can. Because he has the ability to do so. But will he? Absolutely not. Otherwise, he breaks the covenant and forfeits his life. So, we know that God's not a man to lie, nor the son of man to repent. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. So, for us to understand that we could trust him, all we have to do is find out what he said in the covenant, and then take that covenant before the throne and say, this is what you said, I believe it. Now, let me show you the strength of the covenant. Exodus chapter 32, beginning of verse 7. This is one of the most powerful uh, 
sections of scriptures you could ever read. Especially for those who think that, well, you know, God's sovereign, he can change his mind. No, he can't. This is the setting. Moses is on Mount Sinai. The people are making a molten calf on the earth. Getting their gold earrings and giving them to Aaron and so on and so forth. They have this molten calf and they're going to attribute their deliverance from Egypt to this molten calf. These are the gods and we'll see it here. Well, God knows what's going on on the earth. Don't ever think he doesn't. He does. And so he says this to Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, go get thee down for thy, thy, everybody say thy. That means your, right? Your people, which you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way, which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it, have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee, Moses, a great nation. Would you say he's hot? Would you say that God is angry at this point? Uh-huh. He really is. Did you ever have someone say, just leave me alone? I'm just so angry. Just leave me alone. Okay. Verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God. Now, now mind you, this is Moses speaking to God. And said, Lord, why does your wrath or anger wax hot against your people? Not mine. Your people. Which you have brought out or brought forth out of the land of Egypt. With great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, he's speaking to God now. Turn from your fierce wrath and repent. Of this evil against your people. He's talking to God that way. Did you get that? He's talking to God that way. Now, how and why? Well, the next word tells us how and why. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Can you see the strength of the covenant? When Moses appealed to God and reminded him of his oath... 
God had no choice but to repent, which just means to change his mind and not destroy the people. Now, of course, they broke the covenant, but the covenant was not with them only. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But my point is, look at the position, the foundation for the faith of Moses to stand there before God and talk to him like that. Actually, one translation says he talked to his face. Face to face before God, he is telling him, you got to repent. You have no choice but to repent. You made a vow. You made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no possible way you can wipe them out. Besides, I don't want more kids. <laughs> Moses didn't want to raise any more children. So I am not going to let you get away with this. Now, when it comes to a blood covenant relationship, I have the ceremony here written down for us just to quickly look at. First of all, there has to be a meeting place. Well, the two covenant heads make a decision. Here, we're going to meet and we're going to invite people to come to be a part or to be a witness to the covenant. And then we're going to exchange gifts with one another. And then they're going to mix blood in wine and they're going to drink it together. And then they're going to shake their hands. Usually that's where they would, this is where the handshake comes from. Cut the palm of the hand and they would shake hands and mingle their blood with each other so as to gain the status of blood brother, blood brothers or blood brother relationship. And so then they do that. So that's achieved. Then they pronounce the blessings and the curses as they walk the walk of blood. I'll give you this, I'll give you that, etc., etc. But then after those are pronounced, a memorial tree is planted or a monument is planted and then they uh, have a covenant meal that's established now when you put this together what you find out is this God himself entered into a blood covenant relationship with mankind through his son Jesus Christ the God man who represents both God and man there would be a meeting place where they would meet together and they would enter into a covenant relationship and have a ceremony Look in Hebrews chapter 9, once again, now beginning at verse 11, let's expand this a little bit more and look at what it says. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls or goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. For it's not, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So if language means anything, if types and shadows mean anything, what happens is this. And I just want to dramatize it for us, if that's okay. Do I have your permission to do that this morning? Jesus, like the sacrificial lamb, shed his blood where? On Calvary's cross. The two covenant heads had to meet to enter into the covenant relationship and have the ceremony, right? Well, when he died on that cross, what did he say to the Father? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So you think the Father was right there with him entering into a covenant at that point? Absolutely not. He forsook him. Jesus then died and for three days he was raised from the dead on the third day and when he came up out of the grave or the tomb and there he was before Mary and Mary went to touch him he said oh, Mary don't touch me I've not yet ascended to my father your father my God and your God 
See, the high priest could not be defiled in any way, and Mary could not touch him until he finished the work of redemption. What was that work? He had to carry his blood to the proper meeting place. He had to go to the tabernacle of heaven and before the throne of God. But now mind you, Adam was banished from the presence of God. Man had no right to be in the presence of God at all. The high priest once a year could enter into the holy place, holiest place on earth and that was it. And as long as that tabernacle was in force, it meant that the new covenant had not been enforced. But now, all of a sudden, after how many years? 4,000 years after Adam's banished from the presence of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, they are there with flaming swords protecting the tree of life, protecting the mercy seat is there, but it's now become a judgment seat for man because of his sin that really sin-stained everything, the heavenly testers of worship. But all of a sudden, Jesus is raised up from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are told that his blood somehow by the eternal spirit is captured in a basin, and Jesus then enters into, remember the tabernacle, they went through the eastern gate, the gate Judah was right there before the eastern gate, went to the outer court, the inner court, then the holiest place of all. And I can just see these cherubim and these seraphim that are there he, they let them walk let's see they got cameras on them and all that they're probably taking pictures and all that but there's Jesus walking through he's got this basin of blood in his hand he goes to the outer court he goes into the inner court and then finally he makes his way to where the cherubim and the seraphim are right there protecting the holiest place of all and they're standing there with their flaming swords and says what gives you the right to enter in to see the most high and he says I'm coming with my blood that I shed for the redemption of all mankind so step aside and allow me in and they step aside and he walks in and what does he do with his blood he offers his blood upon the mercy seat in the heavenly utensils of worship he cleanses it all and he obtains eternal redemption for mankind he establishes the new and everlasting covenant the memorial meal is what the Lord's Supper is the memorial meal that reminds us we've been redeemed by not silver, not gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's how we've been redeemed. Amen. He establishes the covenant. Now remember, these covenant heads are intelligent. They're not dummies. Do you think that God who cannot lie would swear by an oath before knowing the beginning and the end of what he's saying? You know, you might tell me I'll be here next week at church when you walk out the door. But something happens along the way and you can't be here next week. You know what, you know, do you know what I know about that? You're not God. Because if you were God, you wouldn't have said, I'm, I'm not going to be here next week because I know I have a, something else to do. Yeah. But see, God knows the beginning and the end. He's not going to swear by an oath and then not be able to perform what he said. He's perfect in all of his ways. So once he swears by an oath... He cannot and will not change it. He binds his sovereignty to it. Even in his sovereignty, he cannot in any way, shape, form, or fashion deny what he said he was going to do. That's why he can't or won't flood the earth ever again because he made a promise. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this, but you go to the book of Revelation. You know there's two bows, rainbows. There's one rainbow that's called Adam's. I mean, Noah's rainbow. He's not going to flood the earth. But you know there's a rainbow before the presence of God and any person who's been washed in the blood of the lamb he sees your life filtered through the blood that was shed for your redemption 
And that promise that is made means you're in covenant relationship with Almighty God. He'll perform the whole covenant in your life because of the blood. Not because your performance or mine, but because of his performance. Now, at the cross, he, sh he shed his blood. At the throne, he applied the blood. That's a type and shadow throughout all the old covenant. Galatians chapter 3, 13. If you've got your shouting clothes on, get them ready. Okay. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Why? That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, that we might, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Go on down to 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, which was the law. For you are all children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. We have an inheritance in Christ Jesus that includes every promise God made to Abraham. We used to sing a song, Abraham's blessings are mine. Abraham's blessings are mine. I'm blessed in the city. I'm blessed in the field. Abraham's blessings are mine. Blessed in a basket. Blessed in a store. We've been blessed with heirs. We've been children, praise God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been blessed with land. He's given us all things that pertain to life and God. All the blessings of the gospel belong to every single one of us, but they are experienced, how? By faith. So guess what? This is what this means. If you, you're the worst sinner on the planet, if you could define that. The worst sinner on the planet in the eyes of whoever. You come to God and say, I found out that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for my justification. I am calling upon the name of Jesus to rip me up out of the miry clay and take me and put me in his kingdom right here, right now. Guess what? Jesus can't say no. The Father can't say no. You're too awful of a person. What he says is, I shed my blood for you. I've cleansed you from all unrighteousness. And now by faith, you see, it's by faith we access it. Even though it's been done, by faith we access it. See, if it was just the shed blood, and everybody would be saving the world, it's the applied blood. Have you applied it to your spiritual condition? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Every sinner plunged beneath the flood lose all his or her guilty stains. That blood is coursing through our veins right now. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, we don't make heaven on our own merits. We make heaven based on what Jesus has done for us. Now let me show you the, again, we'll close here, these two verses, the strength of the covenant. And notice how Jesus understands the covenant. Luke 13, verse 16, is the woman bowed over for 18 years with probably what we would call rheumatoid arthritis. She can in no wise lift up herself, so she is bent over, and it's very difficult for her even to look up to see people. But it's a Sabbath day. Jesus 
you know, he's compassionate toward mankind. He sees this woman, and on the Sabbath day, he says, you're loosed of your infirmity, and she's healed. Now, the religious people, they're upset with him because he healed on the Sabbath day. He calls them a bunch of hypocrites because you water your oxen on the Sabbath day, or, or if, a, if a lamb falls into a ditch, you rescue it. So there's a rescue, and there's a necessity that's being met on the Sabbath day, and it's okay. This woman, he says, look at this, verse 16, ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? Don't miss this. What's the reason why she should be healed? She is a daughter of the covenant. Being a daughter of Abraham. He didn't say because she's perfect. He didn't say because she's done everything right. But because she is a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. So healing is a part of the covenant. It belongs to the children of God. Remember the Syrophoenician woman when, when Jesus told her, it's not right for me to give the children's bread and cast it to the dogs? Remember that? The children's bread stands for the whole covenant. It's talking about it all belongs, it's, it's their package deal, it belongs to them. So healing is the children's bread. Because she was asking for deliverance for her daughter who was bound by a demon. And she said, I don't want all that your children have. Give me a crumb that falls from the table and I'll be satisfied. And he said to her, woman, great is your faith for that saying the devil's gone out of your daughter. But he, he identifies the fact that the children's bread, healing belongs to the children of God. It's part of it. It's part of our covenant right. And she was healed. Delivered. Our closing text is Psalm 103. This is something that can really be enlarged, this teaching. There's so much involved here. But look at Psalm 103. David speaking out. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. A benefit is a condition of a contract. A benefit is something that your employer provides for you after meeting together with management and labor, their heads coming together and establishing a contract, let's say for the next three years, when I worked in the mill, it was for three years, and once they negotiated the terms of the contract, then it was ratified. Once it was ratified for the next three years, you got everything that was there listed in the contract. And if management tried to deny you what is your right and privilege or benefit, then they could be taken to court and sued and you would win your case. Well, God the Father and God the Son got together and put their heads together and they came up into an agreement between God, management, and man, labor. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have both represented. And when they sat down at the negotiating table, here's what they said. We'll forgive all their sins, heal all their diseases, redeem their lives from destruction, crown them with loving kindness and tender mercies, and satisfy their mouth with good things that their youth is renewed like the eagles. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are the benefits of the covenant. 
the benefit is the right and the privilege of every child of God. All we've got to do is use our faith. You might just say, well, what if I call upon him and it doesn't happen? That's impossible on his end. It has to happen and he has to honor it. Let's read the next two verses. Who forgives all your diseases, redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, and satisfies your mouth with good things that your youth is renewed like the eagle. That's called the fountain of youth. The fountain of youth is not some geographical location on earth. It's in your mouth. It's our tongue. Glory. I don't know about you. We've got a lot to learn. And a lot to apply, don't we? Let's all stand together before the Lord.